Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 414, The Uprising. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Bo, Kirk, and Joyce for signing up already. News of the victory at York spread fast, and people everywhere were finding their courage. Looking back at these events a thousand years later, knowing everything that happens, this seems hard to imagine. Partly because our knowledge of these events has been filtered through the ruling class of England. They got to decide what counted as real history and what was just a bit of Mickey Mouse faff. So for many of you, this is the first time you've heard of the English rebels, even if you're English yourself. And it's also probably the first time you've heard about how they allied with the Danes and retook York. Or if you had heard about it, it was probably a short sentence that was largely offered up as a way to explain later actions by William. But if you lived here in the 11th century, the retaking of York was a massive event. Malmesbury, recounting the tale years later, wrote about how Earl Waltheof went off on the French saying that he, quote, singly killed many of the Normans in the Battle of York, cutting off their heads one by one as they entered the gate. The way Malmesbury writes about it, it makes it sound like he was playing Fruit Ninja. And it wasn't just the locals cheering for the home team. The Scandinavian world was also electrified by this victory. And even Icelandic skalds were singing new songs about the battle at York. This was a big, big battle big deal, both at home and abroad. And we know that the English were talking about it a lot. And for good reason, the mystique of Norman invincibility was once again cracking. And that was dangerous for William. But there was another reason why the events at York was building momentum for the cause of the English. Because at last, there were some experienced adults in the room. Now, so far, I've been pretty hard on the English nobility during this period. But the fact is that many of them were just kids. Most of the nobles who were experienced and who had the ability to grow a beard had died either at Stamford or Hastings. And that left the mantle of leadership in the hands of those who were too young to fight in those battles or who weren't battle-hardened enough to be drawn up to serve in those battles. And English culture, being what it was, meant that given the choice between an experienced warlike peasant or a gormless, cowardly noble child, power will go to that blue-blooded idiot kid every time. So shortly after that brutal conquest, England was finding itself in the completely predictable situation of having the majority of the surviving English nobility being exactly the kind of people who were unfit to lead an insurgency. And I suspect that's why rebellion after rebellion sees the English leadership, such as it was, buckle in the face of a stiff breeze. This failure wasn't just of individuals. It was structural. And this structure had trapped the nobles almost as much as the peasants. For example, take a closer look at the story of Edgar the Atheling. 
the record makes it pretty clear that he wasn't that thrilled with his position on the line of succession. And actually, Malmesbury in particular had some pretty rough things to say about Edgar, going so far as to tell us that the Atheling was not only indolent, but simple. And an uncomplicated, unfussed lad like Edgar probably would have been happier if he was off the line of succession altogether. Which Malmesbury saw as partly explaining why the kid was so quick to abandon his right to rule to William earlier in the conquest. And the fact of the matter is that no one in a class society is actually free to live the life that they want to. Not even at the top. The English of the 11th century had to live the lives that were assigned to them, regardless of whether or not they had the skills or the temperament for that role. And while that was probably easier for those who were afforded more power and resources, the more fundamental impotence in the face of this structure must have been incredibly demoralizing for everyone involved. Especially in this time of crisis, when experienced leaders were desperately needed, but the only people authorized to lead were the children of the previous leaders, regardless of whether or not those children actually had the aptitude for the job. But something changed with the victory in York. Because suddenly, there were older, much more experienced war leaders in the field. And they were also nobles. So they were allowed to actually hold leadership positions. And sure, they were Danes, but at the same time, it wasn't like the English were inexperienced at taking orders from Scandinavian nobles. They had done that for years. So at the end of the day, this was exciting news for the English. And they were talking about it. And the rebels wanted to capitalize on that buzz. So they dispatched messengers around England to spread the word of what happened in the north, encouraging other English towns to rise up and do the same. It was a straightforward ask. Get out there and get some revenge on the Normans. And if you can, evict them from your neck of the woods. It was time to retake the kingdom. And while it's unlikely that everyone was inclined to join the rebellion, and while even those who did rebel probably didn't all do it for the same reasons, the arrival of the Danish army provided quite the boost in morale for the English, including those English nobles who wanted to rid England of Norman domination, but also didn't want to actually lead the rebellion themselves. And as for the English nobles who were quite comfortable in a leadership role, and had more than a few Norman barbecue recipes. I'm looking at you, Waltheof. Well, the arrival of the Danes was still excellent news, because they had the Normans on the back foot, which was exactly the kind of opening that a rebel noble would want. So what happened at York changed the calculation for many in England. And people were talking. All but one guy. There was one guy who didn't have time to talk. William. This was bad for the bastard. Obviously, the sudden boost in morale among the English was a problem. But the bigger issue was that a Danish army was in England, and it was looking like they might get a foothold in the north. And William, having been on the other side of this, knew exactly how dangerous this situation was. If he wasn't careful, he could easily meet the same end as Harold. So Bill's holiday was cancelled. It was time to get to work. 
And virtually all the accounts agree that as soon as William learned exactly how bad the situation was in the North, he sprung into action, gathering, in the words of the Chronicle, quote, all the force he could collect, end quote. William had adopted Harold's strategy of striking quickly, without warning. And so far, it had been working out for him. So once again, he was moving as fast as he could. With the Danes in the kingdom, speed was his greatest ally. William could not allow the King of Denmark to establish a secure foothold in England, especially not in York, where he'd be able to recruit enormous amounts of the famously bloodthirsty locals. William's best option at preventing a counter-conquest was to do what he had done the year prior. Attack the rebels so quickly that they would lose heart. But to do that, he would need a large army immediately. Which explains why pretty much all the accounts say the same thing. That William grabbed essentially anyone who could stand upright, hold a weapon, and didn't look too shifty. And under normal circumstances, that would have limited his recruiting options a bit. I mean, I'm guessing that anyone who wasn't named Ralph or William was looking pretty shifty these days. There was blood in the water, after all. But this was one of those moments where William's distrust and selfishness paid off. Because if he had spent the previous year moving his forces around to counter the local uprisings, then mustering a large army would have probably been pretty difficult and time-consuming for him. But William didn't do that. Instead, he kept his forces close. And when an uprising took place, he basically told his local commanders to stop whining and figure it out. And that particular management style probably contributed to the fall of York. But it also meant he had knights on hand. So William was able to quickly muster a force of knights and supporting soldiers and march on York without much delay. I'm not sure how quickly William and his army were marching, but we don't have any accounts praising his speed the way we did of Harold, so it probably wasn't as intense as Harold's forced marches. But I'm guessing he was moving relatively quickly, and that many troops moving that quickly would have been hard to miss. So people were talking, and they also started to kick up their own uprisings. Now, south of the Thames, in the lands most heavily dominated by Norman control, well, things seem to have remained relatively quiet. Orderick tells us that some Thanes and other Englishmen, quote, rose unequivocally on the Norman side against their fellow countrymen, end quote. And I suspect he was talking about figures like Thurkel, Edward of Salisbury, and Bishop Wolstan, as well as the various English sheriffs that had been serving William for the last several years. So apparently not everyone was heeding the call to get in the streets and stab a Norman. But a lot of them were. And given how the rebellion at Exeter had failed just one year earlier, the scale of the rebellions of 1069 is honestly surprising. In the far west, the men of Devon gathered their weapons and took to the field. They were joined shortly by their allies from Cornwall. And together they marched towards the city that had been a major bastion for the House of Godwin, the residence of the Queen Mother, and the heart of rebel sympathies in the southwest. They headed to the port city of Exeter. 
We aren't told what the goal of the army from Devon and Cornwall was when they marched on the city. Maybe they wanted to liberate it. Maybe they wanted to occupy it as an important gateway further into England. We don't know. But given how Exeter had been the center of the previous rebellion, it's possible that the rebels had come to Exeter seeking allies and also a stronghold from which they could launch further campaigns into the interior of Wessex. But Orderick tells us that as the army approached, quote, the citizens of Exeter took the king's side, for they had not forgotten the sufferings they had formerly endured, end quote. Now you can read that multiple ways, depending on which suffering you're thinking about. Because William and his knights had certainly inflicted suffering upon the city, even going so far as mutilating prisoners in front of the city walls. But fighting a rebellion, only to have your leadership sneak off and abandon you to the tender mercies of King Eye Gouger, was certainly a type of suffering as well. Either way, though, it seems that the people of Exeter had enough of rebellion, and they just wanted to be left out of whatever this new thing was. Adding to that fact, the infrastructure of Exeter itself had been transformed into a fortress, having been so thoroughly dominated by the Normans that a garrisoned Norman castle now sat within the city walls. And while a castle within the city walls certainly hadn't stopped the people of York from rebelling, the first time they tried it hadn't exactly gone all that well. And while they did succeed in taking the city the second time, that had required the assistance of the Danes, and it had still resulted in the Normans burning their city and their cathedral down in the process. So even if the people of Exeter had rebel sympathies, you can totally understand why they might have wanted to play it safe and not rock the boat, especially with all those heavily armed horse bros milling around within the city walls. So as the English army approached, the gates of Exeter were slammed shut. But that didn't dissuade the people of Devon and Cornwall one iota. I mean, this wasn't William's city. Exeter was Devonshire land. This city was theirs. So the army began to dig in and prepare for a siege. And that makes me suspect that the true goal of this army was to rid the region of the Mott and Bailey castle that sat within the city. Because if you remove the castle then the job of removing the Normans would become exponentially easier. So it was time to get to work. And they weren't the only people who had enough of Norman domination. About 45 miles to the east, the people of Dorset grabbed their weapons, put on whatever armor or protective clothing they might have had, and went into the field. And they were joined by their allies from Somerset. And whether Devonshire and Dorsetshire were simply taking advantage of the chaos of this period, or whether they were taking part in a broader English uprising as requested by the Northumbrian rebels, the fact remains that York, Devonshire, and now Dorsetshire were bringing in allies from outside of the respective shires. And those are the kind of deep ties and alliances that can make them far more formidable than the isolated pockets of resistance that we'd seen earlier in the Conquest era. And it looks like this army had a similar objective as their compatriots who were encamped outside the walls of Exeter. You see, the Normans had recently been working very hard at suppressing the Southwest. 
and to that end, they had recently constructed a castle at Montacute. And looking at the landscape and the way that castles were used by the Normans, if Devon could take Exeter and Dorset could take Montacute, the way would be open to Bournemouth, Southampton, and even Winchester. All of them would be within reach. So this castle had to go. Now, Montacute was governed by William's half-brother, Robert of Mortain, who Malmesbury tells us was, quote, Crassi et hebitus ingenii, which is Latin for stupid and thick. But if Malmesbury was writing today, he probably would have just called him a f***ing idiot. And Robert the Idiot was one of the main recipients of land grants from William. But at the same time, he had very little interest in England, primarily being an absentee landholder. So we've got an out-of-country dolt sapping the wealth of huge sections of the kingdom based on his family connections, which is exactly the sort of situation I'm glad we never see in our modern era. Now, unfortunately for thick Robert, this rebellion kicked up during one of the rare moments when he was actually in England. But fortunately for Robert, he wasn't at Montacute. When his half-brother called up the military to respond to the Danish threat, Robert had answered. So he was already on his way north. Which meant that the governing and defense of Montacute Castle was left to his subordinates, something that was quite common in his lands. And while the boss was an idiot, the garrison at Montacute apparently weren't, because they remained behind the castle walls and just waited for somebody else to handle this and lift the siege for them. I didn't say they were brave. I just said they weren't idiots. And as I mentioned, Mott and Bailey castles were extremely hard to defeat. So now that they retreated behind their walls, the plan was obvious. Hold out and hope they had enough ham and cheese sandwiches to last until someone came to save them. But while this plan was clearly wise in the short term, there was a significant flaw. By locking themselves in their castles, the Normans, who had been able to use the speed of their cavalry to quickly organize and work pretty much as a single unit, found themselves in the same situation that the English had for the past several years. They were isolated, cut off, and forced to deal with things on their own. So, as William, along with large numbers of the Norman knights under his command, marched north, to his rear, the hardy folk of Devon and Somerset placed yet another of his garrisons under virtual house arrest at the castle of Montacute. And the people of the southwest weren't the only people who took note of the fact that, when William had drawn up most of his forces, he left the garrisons in a weakened position. There was another figure who noticed, and he was someone who we haven't spoken about in a while. Some years earlier, Edric the Wild had exploded into the scene, demonstrating his strong political and military skill when he formed an alliance with the Welsh, and together they kicked the bejesus out of the Normans in Hereford. It was a victory so complete that London basically just let it happen. William, Fitzosborne, even that bloodthirsty bastard Bishop Odo didn't launch any sort of punitive response or counterattack. And looking back at it, that was probably wise. 
Surviving records indicate how concerned the Normans were with how the wild men from the woods were launching assassinations and ambushes. And this was a widespread enough problem that we have records of various high-ranked Englishmen who were termed outlaws, and others who, like Edric, were given the moniker the Wild. And Edric, being one of the more successful of these wild men, was wild enough that they seemed to have decided to just leave him alone. And I assume that's why, when the revolts of 1068 kicked off, with fleets landing in the south, and armies marching in the north, and the Midlands launching into its own rebellion, Edric the Wild didn't take part. You see, Edric, in addition to being a dab hand at playing Robin Hood, was a powerful English noble with substantial holdings in Shropshire and Herefordshire. He was also from an old and powerful family, being, according to John of Worcester, the nephew of Edric Strayona. And regardless of how you might feel about Edric f***ing Strayona, he had been a powerful and influential English noble. Which means that if Worcester was right, Edric the Wild was a member of a very powerful dynasty with ties to the House of Wessex. And even if Worcester was wrong, Edric the Wild was still rich as hell, had a lot of land in the Western Marches, and almost certainly was governing over those lands. And that's important, because recently, things in the Western Marches had changed. It turns out that William couldn't leave well enough alone, even though he should have known better. I mean, it was just two years earlier when William had constructed the castle at Hereford, and when the Norman garrisons stationed there behaved the way that Norman garrisons did, Edric and his Welsh allies kicked the shit out of them and set their stuff on fire. And while correlation isn't always causation, this was some pretty obvious causation. And yet, just recently, William decided to plonk down a castle in Shrewsbury, which was in Edric's backyard. And he installed a Norman garrison within it. And just in case that wasn't enough to aggravate the wild man, there's a good chance that William also took this opportunity to tap Roger de Montgomery as the future Earl of Shrewsbury, or at least made it known that things were heading in that direction. So not only was William repeating the actions that had provoked Edric in 1067, he was also maneuvering to remove Edric from his political power in the region while replacing him with a Norman as William had been doing all over the kingdom. Which meant that for Edric, things really had changed. And unlike in 1068, here in 1069, he was definitely ready to stomp on a few croissants. And luckily for him, he wasn't the only one. The people of Cheshire were always up for a fight. You don't live that close to Liverpool without developing a solid left hook. And then you had Edric's biggest weapon, that formidable Naftaf, Prince Blethyn of Gwynedd. Blethyn was always up for attacking England. He'd taken part in Edric's rebellion in 1067, he took part in Edwin and Morcar's rebellion in 1068, and here, in 1069, he was at it again. The fact was, that Prince Blethyn never once shirked his God-given duty to rescue the English from their situation by raiding the hell out of them. 
And who knows, maybe this time he might do the right thing and bring an end to this madness by making the whole island good and Welsh. So when Edric decided it was time to throw down, Blethen assembled his soldiers and joined the party. And the location was easy to reach. It was that castle in Shrewsbury. And as the combined army of Gwyneth, Cheshire, and whatever guerrilla fighters Edric had assembled from Shropshire appeared on the horizon, the Norman garrison rushed behind their walls, barred the gates, and prepared for a siege, just as all the other garrisons had done. William was marching north with a large army, but behind him, all throughout the west, there were Norman garrisons trapped within their castles, unable to coordinate a response to the very real threat they were all facing. From Exeter to Chester, the West was burning, and the garrisons that would have been tasked with handling it were trapped. And the documents tell us who it was that was rebelling. It was the people of Devon, the people of Dorset, the people of Cheshire, the people of Somerset, the people of Cornwall. The scribes don't speak of earls seeking to expand their holdings. And while there may have been thanes involved in these fights, we are told quite clearly that this was a popular uprising. The English, the everyday folk who made the food, the clothes, and the metalwork, were taking things into their own hands all throughout the West. And more than that, while our narrative accounts don't mention it, when we look at charters and legal documents, we even see evidence that the Midlands and East Anglia were joining the fight. England was finally in full rebellion, and the people were still talking, and people were still making preparations, including Hereward the Wake. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Reddit. You can find a link to that and all the other communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.